And so tonight, as I said, we're going to be looking in Ephesians 5. And, and what we want to do is we want to look and see that how the gospel impacts our relationships. Now, we're going to focus on kind of the, the dating relationships, stuff that can be applied to people who are dating, who want to date, who have dated, um, those of you who desire to be married one day. But here's what I want us to understand, that the things that we're going to be walking through, that, that they, they really apply to all types of relationships. But our focus is going to kind of be that, that dating relationship between a guy and a girl. And so, again, this series, The Gospel And, we, we just want to look and see how the gospel has impacted our life. And so we're going to look at relationships. And so just as we've just sang, that there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness from, Je- or f- forgiveness from Jesus. We see that this is the gospel, that we are sinners, but there's forgiveness found in him, and we can have life. And as a result of that, our relationships should look a certain way. So I hope you found Ephesians 5. But before we dive in there, uh, about a year and a half ago, a friend of mine um, made one of the worst relationship mistakes known to man. Now, some of you may have made some, some mistakes before, but this one is pretty bad. So the, uh, the February holiday of Hershey Kisses, Happiness, Hugs, and Hearts was approaching. And my friend decided that he's going to buy a girl some flowers. Okay? And so whenever a guy decides to, to buy a girl some flowers, there are some difficult decisions that have to take place to follow. I mean, you've got to go and you've got to pick them out. What kind of flowers am I going to get? Am I going to get the red ones, the pink ones, the white ones? Am I going to get all of them, red, pink, and white? Just red and pink, red and white. So all kind of combinations, not to mention the chocolates. How many chocolates? Don't want to get too many, but I got to get enough. Do I want to go for the random box, which always has the strange chocolate filled with some kind of weird filling, tastes like old chewing gum, or do I play it safe and go for the Reese's heart? Always a good choice. You see, there's these decisions. They're tough. Now, it's tough for any guy to make a decision to buy some flowers and some goodies, some treats on Valentine's Day. But my friend, he had some, uh, how should I say, some, some additional problems. You see, those, those normal problems that each guy has, those are kind of normal. But see, my friend, his problem was that he didn't just want to give flowers to one girl. He felt that he had enough love to give flowers to two girls. So he was going to try and do the old double flower routine, the DFR, if you will, which again, ladies, if your guy's trying to pull the DFR, you got to be careful, watch out. But that's what he's trying to do. So he's thinking in his mind, this is brilliant. But all the other guys are saying it can't be done. Two flowers, two girls. And so again, it's hard enough to buy flowers for one girl. He's going for two. Now, he began to pick out flowers and to um, purchase them, to schedule them. And, you know, the, the, the mission was starting to be successful. And he was thinking in his mind, this might happen. And so for him, he's got the football and he sees the end zone. There's nobody between him and the goal line, and he is running until suddenly something terrible happens. You see, his plan was was taking place, but there was a miscalculation somewhere. Apparently, somehow, between the addresses and the names, somehow there was a a mix-up. And so although the flowers were delivered to each girl— had a beautiful set of flowers to look at. So if you can imagine the smile that comes across their face and they open up that letter 
but they read a letter that has a different girl's name. So, relationship fail, okay? I don't know if you've been there. If you have, I am sorry. But here's the thing. Relationships, we all want them to be successful. Many of us have been in unsuccessful relationships. Some of us are in successful ones, but all of us want to be in successful relationships. And so the things that we're about to look at in Ephesians chapter 5 is really some guidelines for life principles, life application of Christian living, and today I want to apply those to the relationships that we have with people. And so with this in mind, I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 5. We know that Paul was the author of the book of Ephesians, and, and, and most would say that this, this letter the book of Ephesians is actually a letter, that this letter was passed around to a bunch of different churches so they could read. Now, what's interesting is that when Paul writes his letters in the New Testament, we've got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. We've got these different letters. A lot of times, Paul is writing to address a particular issue. We see this in 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of issues in the church, some problems, if you will, and he addresses those problems. In Galatians, there's there's a major problem where people are trying to work to earn their salvation, and Paul writes, to address those problems. Well, in Ephesians, Paul isn't necessarily addressing any issues, but what he's doing is he's laying a foundation, some doctrine, some teaching, some things that every church of all times would need to know. He talks about the the work of God and salvation. We see that in Ephesians 1. We see it in Ephesians 2. We see that, that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We see the work of God in salvation. We see the unity that should take place in the church. Um, but we also see the conduct that believers should, should have in their life. So when Paul writes this, it's kind of a general letter. And what's interesting is that even today, in our context, which the Bible is still relevant today, we need to understand that. But in particular, this specific book is extremely practical and relevant in today's church because there's a lot of issues that were going on where Paul is saying, hey, this is who God is. This is what the church should be. This is what believers should be. And it's very practical in our lives. Again, just a little more background. In chapter 4, Paul begins a discussion on the walk or the lifestyle that every believer should have. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In verse 17, he says not to walk as the unbelieving Gentiles. So, so Paul is talking about the lifestyle that believers should have. And at the end of chapter 4, one of the last sections, Paul talks about how believers have put off the old man. They've put off the sinful flesh and how they've put on Christ as a result of Christ's work. And so because of that, they're holy and they're righteous, but Paul says that they need to walk in that. And when we get to chapter 5, we see some other aspects of walking or lifestyle that should be a part of every believer's life. So if you will, in verse 1, read with me. In chapter 5, says this, Therefore, Again, therefore, as a result of everything that I've just said, as a result of God and his work and what he's done and how he's saved and how he's redeemed and restored and changed, as a result of him saving us, as a result of the new man of what Christ has done, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling aroma. 
But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down this statement. Walking in love... Versus walking in lust. Walking in love versus walking in lust. Now, this relationship series is actually going to be two parts. So we're going to do the first part tonight. We're just going to stick to these seven verses. And then we'll finish it up in in the next few weeks. But I want you to remember this. Walking in love versus walking in lust. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. In verse 1 and 2, Paul charges the believer to do two things. He charges them to imitate God, and he charges them to walk in love. Now, the command of imitating is simply the idea of following after God. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we read this. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16 says, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So if we're imitating God, it's not as if we're trying to control everything around us. We understand that God is in control. He controls the universe, the world. Paul's not saying, hey, try and control everything. He's saying, have the same character that God has. Imitate his holiness. Imitate his righteousness. For this to take place, we understand that God must be our focus. We've all played the game as a child, follow the leader. You can't follow the leader if you're not looking at the leader. This idea of imitation, of imitating God, we've got to be following him and focusing on him. So Paul says to be imitators of God as dear children. And we know that children imitate their parents. This is why if you go to a Toys R Us, you see a little plastic lawnmower or a little plastic kitchenette. Why? Because children naturally mimic or imitate their parents. They see them. And if we as believers are healthy and growing, it is natural for us to imitate our Father. So as children of God, we are to imitate our Father. We're to imitate his view of sin. We're to imitate his compassion for the lost. We're to imitate his his humility, his holiness, his righteousness. We're to imitate his, his desire for the nations to come to a knowledge of him. But more specifically, we see in verse 2 that Paul says we're to imitate the way that Jesus loves. And so we read that we're to walk in this love, this idea of progressing, of moving, of living a lifestyle of love. We're to walk in love. However, as we studied several weeks back, the four-letter word love is often misused and abused. It's twisted. We've taken it. Society has twisted it, has said it's something that the Bible says it's not. And so if we want to truly understand what love is, we have to go to the God of love. We've got to go to Jesus Christ. And what we see that Jesus' love is selfless and Jesus' love is sacrificing. 
It's sacrificial. So Jesus' love is selfless and sacrificial. We read that Jesus gave himself for us. And in verse 2, teaching us that true love is selfless. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, we read love is patient, love is kind. We've heard this passage. In verse 5, we read that that love does not seek its own. True love is not self-seeking. It is selfless. We also see that true love is sacrificial. If we continue to look at verse 2, we read that Jesus gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. True love is sacrificial. So Jesus' death was a pleasing sacrifice to God. In John 15, 13, we read, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And what we see is that Jesus, who is true love, who gives us the example of true love, is the only place where we can find true, unconditional love. And so if you're in this room and you're in a relationship, not in a relationship, and you feel you desire to be in a relationship, you're looking for that, I want you to know that even if you are to find yourself in a godly relationship, the only person who can truly satisfy every need and desire that you have is Jesus Christ. The true love. He's the only one. Now, as believers, as children, we're called to imitate that love. But the one who gives true, unconditional, agape love is Jesus Christ. It's not based on a condition. He doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you give to the church, because you come to church, because you read your Bible. He simply loves you because he is God and he is good. And so we need to understand that true love is selfless and true love is sacrificial. And so this is the type of love that Paul is challenging us to walk in. This is the type of love that should be evident in all of our lives, but it should also be evident in our relationships should be evident in our relationships. But here's the thing. The opposite of this love is something that's self-gratifying. It's something that's self-centered. The opposite of Jesus' love is lust. Again, are we walking in love or are we walking in lust? Look at verses 3 through 5. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting or joking, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, in verse 3 and 4, we see three different categories of sexual immorality. We see actions, we see thoughts, and also we see words. So in verse 3, we see this word fornication. Now, fornication is sexual immorality. More specifically, it could be anything from, from bestiality, premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery. These are, these, are, these are sexually immoral actions. Now, now each of these actions, they're self-gratifying, they're, they're self-centered, and you say, Madison, I, I, I see that in some of these things, but I don't really see that in others, and, and let's kind of work through that for a moment. 
You see, Scripture is clear that sex is designed for marriage. It's designed between a man and woman. We see that in Scripture. However, we also see where people have perverted that. And in perverting sex, in taking it out of the context of marriage, taking it out of the context of a man and a woman, what people have said is that my way is better than God's way. And so in, in essence, what they're saying is that they are better than God. You could even say that they are claiming to be God because they're claiming to have a better way of doing something than God has intended. A perversion of sex is to exalt you and to exalt your ideas over what God has specifically designed for a particular reason, a particular purpose. We also see this, this uncleanness. So we've got fornication, sexual immorality. This is, a, this is an impure action. We also see uncleanness or impurity. Again, this can be in the thought or the action category. We can throw any type of lustful behavior or thoughts into this category. One of the most destructive immoral behaviors that goes on in the life of believers, one of the least talked about issues is that of pornography. So, so many people struggling with pornography, yet pornography is one of the very things that keeps human sex trafficking in business. We've got I-20 that runs right through Birmingham, is the most popular road in America for human sex trafficking. Pornography in the life of a, of a guy or a girl, with every click, it is supporting that industry. It's supporting that. And so we've got to understand that, that this is an immoral action that should not be in the life of a saint. But see, uncleanness and impurity isn't just connected to pornography. It's connected to other things of lustful thoughts and lustful behaviors. But what we've got to understand is that these issues do exist. We don't talk about them much. But what we've got to understand is that if we are a believer, these things should not be a part of our life. So we see fornication, we see uncleanness, these, these, this idea of actions and thoughts. We also see covetousness. We see covetousness, which is a continuation of the lustful thoughts. In this chapter, we see in verse 3, with the theme being sexual immorality. So this idea of coveting is the idea of a sexually immoral coveting, a, a yearning for somebody else's body or some immoral action. Again, some of us would say, well, well, it's just in our mind, so it's not that bad. Well, that's not what God's word says. God's word says that even in the mind, the thoughts should be pleasing to him. The thoughts should be honoring to him. So we see the actions, fornication. We see uncleanness, actions, and thoughts. We see, we see the thoughts with the covetousness. And you may be thinking, Madison, this seems very legalistic, of this very, oh, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. Well, let's back up a second. Because remember, Paul is writing to a church, to many churches. He's writing to believers. He's already talked in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 about what God has done in the life of the believer. And now he's saying, hey, walk in that life. Walk in a way that's honoring. And so when we read these things, it's not that we avoid these things so that we earn our salvation 
It's that we avoid these things because we have experienced salvation. And because we have experienced salvation, we desire to bring glory and honor to our Savior who has poured his love out on us. Now, when we talk about some of these different sexual immoral practices, the question of how far is too far comes up. A lot of us have thought about this question before. Some of us have probably asked others. Maybe you've even typed it in online because you were scared to ask somebody. But what we see is that there is not a verse in Scripture that says, Christian, this is how far is too far. But what we do see is that we see there's, there's different principles and precepts and truths that we see in God's Word that we can kind of put together and we can see, hey, this is kind of the idea. This is the path that I need to be on. Now, I will say this. Before you ask how far is too far, you may want to ask the question, how can I glorify God most? But still, sometimes that question lurks in our mind and we desire for an answer. And, and to answer this question very briefly, we could spend a lot more time on some of these different topics. And next week, we'll, we'll talk about these in our small groups. But here's what I want us to, to see. And I, I was looking up some stuff that John Piper has said. He's a very respected pastor, theologian. And here's what he says. He says that sexual touching is prelude to sexual intercourse, okay? Everybody stay on board here. Sexual touching was meant to lead to sex. Don't put yourself in that, in that position before you can biblically go all the way because you weren't designed to stop. And so if you are doing those kind of things and you're, you're fighting and you're struggling, you, you actually weren't designed and made to stop. And so as John Piper is saying here, he's saying, don't start because you weren't meant to stop. That was intended for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And again, we've got to ask the question, do we want to walk in love or do we want to walk in lust? Because if we're walking in love, then that means that we are not self-seeking, not looking to self-gratify. We're looking at a selflessness and here's what John Piper says, the statement to kind of answer the question. And I'd encourage you to write this down or to think about it and really think about what it means. Avoid sexually awakening, touching, and kissing. Now, let me say this again. Avoid sexually awakening, touching, and kissing. Now, here's the thing. Ask anybody who's ever had premarital sex and they'll say that they wish they wouldn't have done it. Ask the person what led to that, and they could tell you that it was sexually awaking, touching, and kissing that led to that. And if you ask any believer that has had premarital sex, they will tell you that it was self-centered, it was self-seeking, it was not love, it was lust. Because if it would have been love, that person would have wanted what is best for the other person. And what is best for the other person is for the other person to follow Jesus with everything they've got. Now, again, these are very difficult things to hear and to process because all of us know people that have walked through this or either we've walked through them ourselves. And again, at this point, I want to remind us what we sang before we started, that there's forgiveness, that there's love and there's acceptance, and it's found at the, foot, at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of the cross.
And so if you have been involved in any of these sexually immoral actions, know that there is forgiveness to be found. But know that there is something so much greater, so much better that God has to offer you. You see, sex is like a fire. It's meant to be kept in the fireplace. It's meant to be kept in the stove. It can keep you warm. It can cook your food. But if you take it out of the fireplace, out of the fire pit, it spreads. It can burn down houses. It brings about destruction and damnation. It destroys lives. It enchains people. And what God wants is for believers, for his children, to experience life the way it was intended to experience it in its fulfillment. And for that to take place, we have to do it God's way. At this time, just to say something to the guys in this room, society has twisted what it means to be a man. Society has taken what a man looks like and said it's the guy that sleeps with a bunch of girls. It's the guy who gloats in the fact that he's done this and he's done that and he's been here and he's done this with all kinds of women. I can remember in high school sitting across the table of people in one of my classes at lunch and them just talking about doing this with their girlfriend and doing that. And they were taking pride in it. Society has said this is what it means to be a man. But that man is a weak man. It's a pathetic man. It's a broken man. It's not a man at all. Because what we see in Scripture is a man that doesn't look at a woman as a sex object. It's a man that looks at a woman with respect and with honor. And what we need is we need some, some actual men to begin to look at women the way that a man would. To respect her, to treasure her, to honor her, to protect her, to defend her. And so, guys, I'm asking you to step up to the plate. Women, society has twisted what it means to be a woman. Society actually celebrates women as a sex object. Society has taken women and made them an object, turned them into marketing, turned them into something to sell items, not to just sell sex, but to sell food and to sell all kinds of other things. Society celebrates the woman who who gloats in the fact that she looks a certain way or dresses a certain way. But what we see in Scripture, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God loves you, he cares for you. And in Proverbs 31, verse 30, we read that charm is deceitful. We read that beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. May we, as men and women, as a generation, be rebellious to society into society's ideals and ideas. May we be rebellious to this mentality that society has looked at sex and said, hey, this is what it's supposed to be. Hey, this is what relationships are supposed to be. May we be rebellious and follow Jesus Christ with every breath that we have for as long as we have until Jesus comes back or till we find ourselves in the grave. And with this in mind, we continue to look in verse 5. And we see this, for this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who's an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, this can be a scary verse because for those of us in this room that would say, I'm a believer, but I've made the mistake. Does that mean that I have lost my salvation because I've gone too far, because I made the mistake? 
Absolutely not. If you can do no good work to earn your salvation, you can do no wicked work to lose your salvation. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved, not of works. It's not by works. And so you can do no wicked work to lose your salvation. However, what we see is that these immoral practices, they characterize the person who's not in God's family. They characterize the person who is going to spend eternity in hell and experience God's wrath. And so what Paul is saying is that these things should not characterize the person who's been redeemed, the person who is in God's family. And so if these things are a part of your life, as a believer, you are, you are living in rebellion against a holy God and you need to repent, and when you repent and confess, you find that there's forgiveness. You find that there's freedom. We talked this past semester, 1 John chapter 1 through, through 5, we, we see this idea of light. We see it in the book of John, the idea of bringing our sins into the light. And once they're brought into the light, they are exposed We see them for their wickedness, but we also see that there's forgiveness there. Far too many people are keeping their immoral actions hidden in the dark. They're not bringing them into the light, and they feel trapped. They feel like they're in quicksand. They're going lower and lower. As believers, we've got to bring these things into the light. Yes, it's scary because... Yes, people might think something about you, and that's because of their human nature. But what we do know is this, is when you bring things into the light, there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's compassion, there's hope, there's peace. Jesus is the only one that offers it. You can't find it anywhere else. And so if that's you, may you bring it into the light. May you ask for forgiveness. And in verse 6, we see this, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Now, Paul uses a word in verse 6 that we need to pay attention to very carefully. He says the word deceive. He did not want the believers to be deceived with these empty words, these unbiblical words, these words that had no biblical truth to them. But here's the thing. There are, there are many Christians today that have been deceived. They've been deceived into thinking that premarital sex is okay. They've been deceived into thinking that homosexuality is okay. They've been deceived into thinking that the music and the movies we watch and the books we read do not actually affect us. See, many of us, and again, do not think that I'm being legalistic here. It's the idea that Satan wants to do anything and everything he can to destroy you. And you've got to be careful not to be deceived. Do not be so naive to say that listening to this type of music, watching these types of movies, being involved in this type of behavior will not affect me because it will. It will. Ask anybody who's ever gone too far. It started with something small. It started with a thought. The thought led to maybe words or an action, and then things began to spiral out of control. And what Paul is saying is let no one deceive you. Do not let your friends deceive you. Don't let the world deceive you. Don't let Satan deceive you. Be on your guard. 
Paul says to not to take part in these sexually impure actions that are contrary to Jesus. They are contrary to true love. You see, in your relationships, you've got to ask yourself, am I going to walk in love or am I going to walk in lust? Am I going to walk in love or am I going to walk in lust? Love is characterized by selflessness and sacrifice. Lust is characterized by selfishness and self-centeredness. The path to a healthy relationship is not marked by self, but by surrender to Jesus Christ. The path to a healthy relationship is not marked by self, but by surrender to Jesus Christ. If you are not fully surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ, your relationship will not be what it could be. Your relationship will not be fulfilling because any human relationship is never going to completely be fulfilling because Jesus Christ is the only one that can fully satisfy. See, if you want to have a healthy relationship, a healthy dating relationship, a healthy relationship with your parents, a healthy relationship with your boss, your coworkers, the people you go to school with, the people in your community, in your church, you have to be fully submitted and surrendered to Jesus. Now, here's the thing. After hearing these kind of, these kind of words and is working through these things, sometimes it's easy for us to think that God is trying to withhold some kind of pleasure from us. But what we've got to understand is that God is trying to protect us. God is trying to keep us on the right path because God has designed us. God has designed sex. God has designed relationships for a particular reason and a particular purpose. And when we pervert those reasons, when we pervert those purposes, we find destruction. We find devastation. We find pain and we find heartache. 